0: Good morning, my dear friends, to all our dear audience on KNUS 710 AM or via podcast. I welcome all of you. This morning, we shall interact first by waking up, praising God. If you're sad, allow God to put a joy, a smile on your face. If you're married, give a good and warm greeting to your wife or to your husband. Give a good warm morning hug or welcome to your children and to all those who live with you. And do me a favor, it's okay to turn on your radio at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning and contact friend so they can join in as well. Next, of course, let us warm up the day by being nice to each other and by being nice to the Lord. This is Father Andre, and good holy Sunday morning with God. Good holy Sunday morning, my dear friends, uh, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to wish us all a blessed and wonderful Sunday. Um You know, on the Sunday show, we shall speak about a type of a prayer. You know there are multiple types of prayers that are found in the holy Bible, uh both in the old and the New Testament. Of course, there is a prayer that expresses joy, there is a prayer that expresses victory, there is a prayer that expresses uh, hope. there is also a prayer that actually expresses distress, a prayer in distress. Is a type of a prayer that we uh, find in a holy Bible. And this uh, prayer of distress, of course, it's like a lamentation. It's a prayer that comes out of pain. You know, at a certain time, um, in the history of the humanity, a country was under attack by an assortment of Middle Eastern peoples. Of course, the crisis was so acute and its leader called all the people to prayer. Um, the story is found on a franciscan blog and in the franciscan blog it continues to state that the general description sounds painfully similar to the 9-11 terrorist attacks that we in the united states have, have, have suffered from but in fact the time in question was about 850 before the era of our lord jesus christ and the country in question was the biblical kingdom of judah the enemies were from Ammon, Moab, and Edom. Today, all of them are part of Jordan. The reader was David, the king, and Davidi king, Jehoshaphat, a Davidic king, Jehoshaphat. And the prayer he called the people to, it says the following, and I quote, We are powerless before this vast multitude that comes against us. We are at a loss. What to do? Hence our eyes are turned toward you. We find this prayer in the second book of Chronicles, chapter 20, verse 12. We call this prayer lamentation. So what is lamentation or prayer in distress exactly? Lamentation or a prayer for help, it comes out of pain. It comes out of fear. It comes out of giving up all, I would say, arguments that we have at hand, weapons we have at hand possibilities we have at hand. basically we have exasperated every remedy that we could have had in our hands at the end of we surrender totally to god it is very common in the bible to find such prayers for instance uh, over one third 50 or so of the psalms of david are actually laments lament frequently occurs in the book of job as well um, in one of the quotes and the book of job chapter 3 verse 11 Job states, why did I not perish at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. The prophets likewise cry out to God, such as Jeremiah does, for instance. Jeremiah states, uh, um, why is my pain continuous, my wound incurable? In chapter 15, verse 18, we also have uh, the exploration of Habakkuk, who says, my legs tremble beneath me. I await the day of distress that will come upon the people who attack us. Chapter 3, verse 16. In these um, sorts of prayers, my friends, uh, today we have with us uh, on this uh, radio show a friend of the show, a dear friend. His name Julian Dunraven. Dr. Julian is an adjunct professor of law and uh, business at Arapaho Community College. Good Sunday morning to you, Dr. Julian. Good morning. Good morning to you, Father. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Doctor, you have worked on freedom. You have worked on constitution. You have worked on educational laws. You have worked on contracts. How much distress you find when you treat people? I, I, this is a question kind of out of outside the box, I, I would say. When you look at you, at, at your customer and um, whoever
1: the adversary of that customer is, do you feel the distress I do, I, especially because in my area of law, which is corporate law is where I practice in, the goal is to have a mutual profit, to find a way to to make both parties want to do business with one another. And this is why I like corporate law so well, because if you're doing your job well, everybody walks away happy and profitable. And Thus, the situations you described, the lamentations, the difficulties between adversaries. This is, this is the breakdown of everything we try to do in corporate law. This is the breakdown of business, it's the breakdown of profit. It is, well, to quote Ayn Rand, if you're no longer trading in dollars, your only alternative is the muzzle of a gun. And then no one profits.
0: Wow. And then no one profits. You know, um, talking about incidents, I know, um, before we came to the show we were talking earlier this week you and me there is plenty of distress in the united states plenty of distress in europe plenty of distress in the church plenty of distress amongst people plenty of distress in the middle east and lebanon in syria and egypt in ethiopia in pakistan in um, Philippines, in canada in germany in france in greece fires tornadoes uh, natural disasters, wars, captivities, plagues, hunger, um, you name it. Um, uh, to, to recite some, you know, in 2014, it was around August 6, over 50,000 people in northern Iraq were forced to leave their villages, their towns, and even their nation of Iraq. In 2020, on August 4, three, 350,000 people in Beirut, Lebanon, were directly affected by what is commonly known as the Beirut Explosion. These people had to leave their homes, left even their city, and many left the country. The casualties from the Beirut explosion alone were 218 people who were killed, 7,000 people injured. Amongst the dead were people from various countries including nationals of Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, Ethiopia, Bangladesh, Philippines, Pakistan, Palestine, the Netherlands, Canada, Germany, France, Australia, and the United States. The explosion was caused by the inadequate storage of 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate in the port of Beirut. You know, beside the large number of losses of lives, the explosion also resulted in an estimated 300,000 people who became homeless. 40,000 buildings were between mid and to severely damaged, amongst which at least 8,000 buildings were directly damaged with severity. And uh, at least 640 were cultural heritage buildings. Counting 15,000 productive activities were brought to their knees. 106 healthcare facilities, amongst which were three main hospitals, also stopped from working, 178 schools, damaged. And the list goes on and goes on and goes on. Um, Julian, if I were to ask you, um, compare that level of distress to population in the world, to population in the world. The United States today, as our homeland, is also experiencing some level of distress. Can you describe for us a little bit of the distress that goes on in the U.S. today?
1: Well, I think the U.S. is a reflection of everywhere else because we are such a huge influence on the rest of the world. But, I mean, you've seen how divided our politics is. We have we have not been this badly divided since uh, the Civil War. Um, our Our economic system is in shambles our international relations is in shambles you you look at our politicians and you see sort of a parade of incompetence and senility um so yes i would say the united states very much reflects the problems that sadly it has been responsible for all around the world
0: and you know the united states almost is experiencing severe persecution you know people of faith have been persecuted. Um, we are still living in the consequences of the, um, I wouldn't call it the coronavirus. I would call it probably, uh, what do you call those, the, the prohibitive laws that they have put in place that basically took some people out, you know, the, the, the fight around the vaccine mandates, the vaccine mandates, you know, division yeah. that, that caused that there are still consequences today in the United States to that effect, right? People's lives have been destroyed because of these
1: Right. Mandates. And this precisely following some of the other places you named in the world the united states attempted to shut down the largest economy on earth overnight and then thinks you can simply switch a flip a switch and make everything start running again there's going to be domino effects of that for for many many years i think the shortages in the labor market are just a a small portion of that but our our system is down in productivity across the board it is it's very difficult to restart things and even more so, I think in listening to you recite these, these problems, a, and going back to my opening comment, a profitable people can endure hardship. A profitable people knows that there will occasionally be droughts. There will occasionally be conflicts and they can band together and get through those hard times because they are profitable enough when it's not to be able to do so. However, a people pushed to the brink don't have any margin upon which to draw when crisis hits and the the seizure of power during the covid crisis that has and you can see this reflected all over the world these these attempts to seize power have left people in all over the world including the united states with very little marginal room and so rather than rally in a time of crisis they are suffering because there is not room to grow there is not room to band together there is not room to make a profit and to have surplus and And
0: go ahead ahead. do you believe we have reached irreconcilable differences in the united states between people who um, basically adopted to whatever system let's look at the ethical problems let's look at the sexual revolution moral problems the uh, let's look at the, the, the world, the divide, the great divide in politics, whether electoral politics, you know, the, what's happening in, in, uh, between the candidates, um, starting probably for, for, forever since, I guess, um, since 2014 or 2015, I guess. Has the United States ever known such a polarization? Has it ever reached in its history such irreconcilable state?
1: The Civil War. Only the Civil War. Yes. Only the civil war. It, we have always been a pluralistic country. We have always had differences of opinion and we've had lively debates, but always with a tolerance that one side will win, the other will lose four years later or two years later or six years later. You'll fight it out all over again and somebody else will win. And we've accepted that bargain over the years. This is, this is sort of the first time since the civil war that most of the country now, according to the latest polls, most of the country, with the exception of the of the West, um, and excluding the West Coast, wants secession. The blue areas of the country want to become their own country. The red areas want to become their own country. Neither of them wants to live with the other one.
0: Wow. You know, I, I do not want to enter into the rhetoric of the, what we may call gun violence and mass shootings. But in the United States, in 2023, 1,200 people died, um, and I did watch many of the news. The way these shootings were happening, you know, for me, as as a citizen of of, of the U.S., but as a person also who lived the tragedies of massacres, of massacres um, uh, in Lebanon, um, and and learned a lot about massacres elsewhere in the world. The type of violence, the type of violence when it comes to killing people, murdering people. It's almost ritual. It's not just like, a like, like, um, it's not, a, there is more than mass shooting. Have you ever looked, um, on, on, on the violence that has been happening? A mother kills her three children, for instance. Um, like, a a brother kills his sister, for instance, and, and, uh, you know, uh, abuses her or, or causing rape. What's happening in the United States when it comes to this violence? Is this a problem of education? Is a problem of, uh, narcotics is a problem of depression.
1: Uh, what, what sort of problem? Is it a problem of lack of a prayer? That's part of it, I think, but not in the way that people would think. God is serious when he said that he gave us free will. Prayer alone is not going to solve these problems, but prayer and bringing people together in prayer builds community. Have you ever looked at what causes a mass shooter or what they have in common with each other? All of them are isolated people, suffering what we call in criminal justice, anime, a feeling of disconnect from society. They are largely isolated. They are loners. They have felt disenfranchised. The same can be true largely on the international scale. Um, why, why do young men riot? Why do they go to war? Largely from a lack of opportunity. They, and why do governments crack down in these, these massacres, as you call them? It's to induce despair so that resistance is pointless. And the people who are resisting, who are engaging in these, in these violent episodes, they are already despairing. Um, I remember when, when a shooter walked into my classroom and and expressed a desire to kill everyone there. I, it was not a fun situation, let me tell you that. However, I, I was able to converse with him. I knew his name. I called him out on it. We sat down. I had one hand on my gun. He had his hand on his gun. And we talked about Emmanuel Kant. We talked about meaning. And he expressed that one of the reasons that he did this is because every night he had to sit on his front porch defending his home and his family from rival gangs. And he had come to the conclusion that there was no kinder thing he could do to the world than attempt to take as many people out of it as he could before taking himself out because he thought it was too cruel of a place to live. And in discussing Immanuel Kant and meaning, I was able to persuade him that maybe there was another way to live. By the time we were done, two hours later, he had given up his weapon, he had uh, he had decided to get some therapy, and when we exited the classroom, there were police on either side of the door. I was annoyed to discover this, because they didn't intervene. And they said that the reason they didn't intervene is because I was doing a fine job myself, but they'd never heard of a shooter disarmed by Immanuel Kant before. Why I was annoyed that they allowed this to continue. But that young man is today a police officer himself. He discovered meaning. He escaped from his situation and he teaches other police officers about constitutional law today. And this is a real story, right? This is, this, this is a real story. Yes. And I, I think that this is, this is a situation that is common in so many places in the world and so many of our own young people who have who have despaired of finding any sort of meaning because we have destroyed it. We have, we have relied on brute power for so long that we have taken away the autonomy and the meaning that gives people hope. And th- this is, this is the real problem. This, this degradation of society, this lack of meaning. How do we get it back? Well, you, you have to give up power to do that. You have to give people autonomy. You have to give them opportunity and you have to create that. That doesn't happen with the overextending power that we have been exercising, not just in this country, but in countries all over the world as well. Your own country, Lebanon, the Western powers designed Lebanon to, to sort of be in, in in a constant self dispute. And they have kept them there largely in, in a constant turmoil and sort of cruelly. And, and that has, that has left Lebanon increasing with, with, less and less margin to adapt so that you're right after this explosion they could not and with the with the various forces trying to seize power in lebanon has belay uh there isn't much room for the lebanese people to grow and express themselves i think the the kindest thing the west could do in lebanon would be to take districts and and create free cities, um free of these both the western um imperialism and the internal conflicts cities that are designed by contract cities that are designed in real freedom to allow the people to express themselves as much as they are able to do so and to develop as much as they are able to do so and then we might see what the kindness and the opportunity of lebanon can be but we we so far we have wanted to put people against one another in the middle east and we are seeing the consequences I want to agree with you, you know, Lebanon
0: is is undergoing a major, major humanitarian crisis. If you look at its size, if you see that um, 6 million people, we have about 2 million refugees, 2 million Syrian refugees. And now in Lebanon, on top of the 2 million Syrian refugees, there are actually over 2 million tourists. 2 million tourists. This is a country of 6 million people. There are 4 million now people in the country beside its own population. There's, you know, bacon temperatures all over the place. You see people being able to afford food, being able to afford gas. Traffic is crazy. Uh, you spend hours and hours in a distance that is usually takes you half an hour. You need about hour and a half to get to your destination. In many places, there is no electricity. You see like two societies or three societies living at the same time. Syrian refugees, you know, everything is paid for them Their school system is paid for them They don't have to pay for gas They even have you know, their own tickets to go to uh, to hospitals They have their own uh, um, tickets to go to a grocery store, for instance Vouchers to go to a grocery store They get paid um, $400 per month And because of their religious affiliation If a man is married more than one, one, one woman, basically He gets uh, a voucher per family, per, per wife Basically, so they could make really a large income. Uh, it's really diminishing uh, the possibility of pluralistic society, which we always had um, in this little country of Lebanon. Uh, beside that, uh, let's look at the humanitarian crisis in the Horn of Africa. You know, the current crisis in the Horn of Africa has left thirty-six point four million people across Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia in need of urgent humanitarian assistance. If you look at the similar crisis happening in Sahel, in, um, in, in Africa as well, uh, Burkina Faso and Niger, who today is experiencing a coup in Niger, for for instance, um, there is an estimate approximately of 34.8 million people who require humanitarian assistance. An additional 3 million will require support this year. If you look at the Democratic Republic of Congo, for instance, there are 38 mm in need, thirty-eight percent increase in need compared to last year. That's like twenty-seven million people. Let's look at the Ukraine issue. Let's look at the Yemen issue. Let's look at the Pakistan issue. Let's look at the way we left Afghanistan for God's sake. Uh, you know, in in uh, in, Af- in in Afghanistan, for instance, um, we have left twenty-four point one million Afghans are in need of humanitarian assistance, including fifteen million children 15 million children um is that a fault to the international politics to globalism or to the global economy or it's a it's a policy issue and does the united states bear any responsibility
1: in these world humanitarian crisis almost all yes in Afghanistan, there is a much longer history of, of horror that went on in Afghanistan through the Soviet Union and then now with the United States, so less so there. but our idiocy in the occupation of Iraq destabilized the entire region um, and and you rightly point out that Syria, for instance, was actually starting to do a little better um. And the Biden administration has has gone back to funding oppositional militias for causing conflict, for causing instability. And this is, although it's not very popular to say, um, Russia was correct in Syria. Bashir al-Assad was an evil man, no doubt. He is a brutal and evil man. However, he is an Alawite. He is a minority. And he because of this, by necessity, protected minorities in Syria. He also kept it stable. And that was a much better situation for everyone to live in than what we have now. Russia, I think, rightly recognizes that a stable Syria under Bashar al-Assad is better than an unstable Syria with this sort of vague pretense at democracy that's actually a degradation to various fanatical groups funded by the United States. Russia's right about that. And we should be working with them a little better at that instead of this insane idea that we have of exporting Western democracies to places that have never experienced them and do not have the cultural support with them. And they only would get that cultural support from a, from a system of, of prosperity and stability that we are denying.
0: Dr. Dan Raven, I want to thank you so much for this great intervention on the show. I want to pray with you this prayer of distress we ask Almighty God, Lord, listen to my prayer. Turn your ear to my appeal. You are faithful. You are just. Give answer. Do not call your servant to judgment, for no one is just in your sight. May Almighty God bless us all, protect us from all evil, bring us all to everlasting life. Amen. Thanks for joining us today for Good Sunday Morning with Father Andre. Father Andre and his team rely on your prayers and generosity to help feed over 5,000 families in Lebanon every month. Go to missionofhopeandmercy.org to learn more. Your support helps buy supplies from local farms and factories, employ truckers to ship the food, all to let these families know they
1: are not forgotten. Go to missionofhopeandmercy.org and donate today and join us next week at 9:30 a.m. for good Sunday morning with Father Andre.